This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR. We're a film criticism show that happens every Monday night exactly at this time. My name's Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined by Josh Nelson and our ongoing guest host, Alexandra Heller Nicholas. Good evening to you both. Good evening, Thomas. Hello. Hey, this is our first show in April, which means it's our first April amnesty show. Now, look, this is the time of year where, look, we know some of you miss out on the whole Radiothon thing. I don't know how you miss it. It's, it's, it's a crazy uh, period of encouraging you to subscribe to this magnificent station so it can continue doing what it it does. But, look, you don't always get there, we, we, we realise. So April amnesty is a really great point to um, renew your subscription. It's also a really good point to tell that freeloading friend of yours, you know this station that you love and adore and gives you amazing radio that you can't get elsewhere? It's time to become a subscriber. So, look, we're encouraging you to do that, to do that all throughout April. We don't give you the hard sell despite how i'm sounding right now we aren't constant like we are in radiothon but yeah do it and look i think we say this every year even if the only show you listen to is plato's cave and i don't know why this would be the only show you listen to um but we, look we, we actually have a handful of people who know us when we began as podcasters so so maybe there are people who still just listen to the to the podcast but we've always been a triple r podcast before we became a triple r show so even if your connection with us is that way please subscribe you can do that by going online at rrr.org.au. Uh, there's a big banner there. Click that banner. It'll take you through also to all the prizes you can win. And it's prizes connected with eating, with music. There's even some drinking. film. Drinking. Drinking. There are even some <laughs> film-related prizes in there. Um, also, pop along to Triple R. We're at the corner of Blythe and Nicholson Streets in Brunswick East. Office hours are 10 to 6 Monday to Friday or 10 to 4 on Saturdays. April Amnesty... You know, we, we won't hold it against you if you just sneak in and subscribe this month. I Just totally will. will. I totally will. Well, Josh, you're a regular Amnesty, April Amnesty resubscriber, aren't you? Yeah, I like to be different, so... <laughs> there you go. Tonight's show... We're going to take a look at the low-budget American independent film Listen Up, Philip, where Jason Schwartzman plays a brilliant yet obnoxious novelist living in New York City. Now, sticking kind of with the literary theme, we're then going to t- discuss the 1946 adaptation of Ernest Hemingway's short story The Killers, uh, a film that, among other things, was Burt Lancaster's first film role. And then let's go back to contemporary New York for a documentary about a legend of stage and screen with Elaine Stritch, Shoot Me. But before we get to her brilliance, let's go to Listen Up, Philip. Listen Up, Philip. Well, it's been an interesting weekend to think about this film um, before coming on air to talk about it because if you've been online, you've probably picked up the brouhaha surrounding the director of Listen Up, Philip, uh, Alex Ross Perry, who's just been pegged to do the live-action adaptation of Winnie the Pooh. So I was all prepared to come in and talk about Philip Roth, and here I am talking about A.A. Milne because life is cray. It's cray cray. <laughs> I, I don't get the link at all. Why not? It's, it's dudes. It's all dudes. It's all dude literature. Well, hang on. Paddington, <laughs> Paddington was adapted by the guy who did The Mighty Boosh, wasn't it? So, you know, yeah, okay, <laughs> fair enough. No, that, that does make sense well, to it me. Does actually, yes. The lo-fi <laughs> sensibility of this film going to Winnie the Pooh is, is kind of... Christopher Robin's an arrogant prick, so, you know, it does, <laughs> there's a link. I'd love to see Jackie Schwartzman as <laughs> I was Christopher thinking, Robin. 
<laughs> I was thinking of a kind of um, where the wild things are styled adaptation, but I, I don't know whether that is going to happen. I've got, I, I don't, I don't know what's happening. I just am looping the kinks. It's a mixed up, muddled up, shook up world. Yeah, listen up, Philip directed doing Winnie the Pooh. What else comes out of the random name generator that is popular culture? <laughs> so look, we can perhaps talk about that a little more. But I'm, I'm going to focus less on on the Pooh Bear and a little bit more on, on Philip Roth. This is a curious little film. Um, I have a, a very strong, smug radar when I watch film. I think if there's an alarm that goes off at any one element of film, it's, it's smugness. And to be honest, I thought that this film would have, have it in, in a large volume, and it didn't because it's a film about smugness. It's not a smug film as such. So I was quite surprised that I actually really liked this film. Um, Jason Schwartzman is horrendous in it. He's just the most smug, repulsive character. I secretly have always had a suspicion that he might be a little bit like this character in real life. I have nothing to base that on. And I'm sorry, Mr. Schwartzman, to, um, to, to bring disrepute to your name. You're probably a very nice person. But this character is precious, selfish. He has no self-awareness and is just thoroughly unlikable. The plot follows Philip, who's a young New York writer. Um, he's just—he's about to release his second novel after the first novel, his debut novel, launched him into the literary limelight. He's self-obsessed. Uh, he's very arrogant, um, and he's burnt out. He's—he's he's struggling in his relationship with his partner, and he decides to spend some time out of um, out of the city in the country house of legendary author Ike Zimmerman, played by Jonathan Price. His attempt to recharge his batteries, however, pretty much fail for a number of reasons. Um, there's a bunch of elements that come into play, including uh, Zimmerman's daughter, played by Kristen Ritter. So the film is very much a love letter to Philip Roth. Um, obviously the title of, of the film alone is kind of flagging that. Um, something in the tone of Eric Borgosian's voiceovers, I think, can also be considered Rothian to a degree. Um, and if you miss all of that, the typeface for the title screen alone is the famous Philip Roth font. Um, even Ike Zimmerman, um, for me at least, is a kind of play with the recurring Philip Roth character of Nathan Zuckerman, the, the protagonist that appears in a lot of uh, Roth's most famous books. This is, as I'm probably implying, this is dick-lit fanfic. There's no question about that. But it's not a vessel for simpering ador- adoration on, on Roth or any of the other authors that he's referencing. There's some really explicit references to both David Foster Wallace and Martin Amos as well in the film. Um, if anything, the film is in some way a critique of a lot of the uh, kind of cliched um, uh, attacks, I guess, that Roth in particular uh, has faced throughout his career. It does this in a really shrewd way. Um, the first and I think it comes as a surprise. I think the first quarter is probably the part of the film where the most gags are. It's the funny bit of the film. Um, the film is divided into four sections, effectively. There's two about Philip that bookend the film. The second one is on Ashley, his partner, played by Elizabeth Moss. And the third is on Zimmerman, um, played by J- Jonathan Price, who's effectively just channeling Max von Sydow from Hannah and Her Sisters by Woody Allen, for me. Um, the second section for me was absolutely the strongest it's why it's where the, the film really packs its punch which focuses on uh ashley and her realization that her partner that she has lived with and that she's been in love with is actually a bit of a dick um it's a very kind of compassionate sympathetic exploration of her experience um which i feel in a way it, it, 
is a bit of a critique of, of the, the kind of gender politic arguments that, that tend to haunt Philip Roth. Um, I mean, Schwarzman as Philip is just repugnant. I can't, I can't emphasise this enough. He's just such a, dis- a disgraceful human being. And so much of the film relies on him being so horrible. I think the journey that Ashley goes through and that the other characters go through in a way hinge on his reliably disgusting persona. <laughs> Yeah, he's um, the film never lets us forget how obnoxious he is. I reckon there's one or two points where maybe we could get some sympathy for him or maybe there's the hint that he may have learned a lesson and then that possibility is very quickly snatched away from us. Uh, he, he is revolting, he's self-pitying, he's self-absorbed, he's convinced that um, any misfortune he's ever experienced is due to somebody else's involvement in his life, usually women. Um, and, you know, and he sort of looks at Ike as his older figure who completely endorses all this bullshit. Um, and, I mean, Ike is very much a, a sort of older manifestation of what he is going to become, and he kind of wants that. I mean, these two men kind of not only admire each other's writing ability, but admire each other's selfishness. And, yeah, it certainly sort of played for laughs, I think, through quite a lot of the film. And there's something kind of wickedly delightful about watching characters with very few redeeming factors go in and mess up various social situations. But I think the film it does have a, have a, have a point, and, and that is... Well, there's, there's a few points. I mean, I think it's saying that success doesn't automatically bring happiness. It also shows us that this kind of attitude doesn't bring happiness. And, and it really has a very devastating effect on people around you. I think we sort of get over some of the, the initial humour and then we get to see some of the damage that is done to people, particularly Ike's daughter and Ashley. And I agree with you, that segment with a focus on Elizabeth Moss's character of Ashley is really strong. And it's, I think it's when I kind of really fell in love with this film, that segment. And me too. And was it, I mean, nothing else, you suddenly realise what a relief it was to have him out of the film for that section. As much as you love him, it's great when he's out and we see this woman coming to her own to a degree and and i think moss steals the film there's just one scene in particular where i think she goes through about six different emotions in 30 seconds without speaking we just see her face kind of contort and then relax again and it's you know in in, in the hands of a, of a lesser actor it would have been too much of a capital a acting moment but she sells it and it's uh, utterly convincing i um kind of really enjoyed this film on a very basic level and then it's really stuck with me since and I think that what it's trying to say is really sunk in and I think it's actually quite a damning uh, commentary on a certain type of male and possibly even in general male behaviour which is that kind of making the world about them, blaming everybody else for their misfortunes, uh, expecting partners to make sacrifices when, when, when they won't uh, and sometimes it's played very big but there are also some very small details in this film which ultimately um, make it the success that I believe it is I can't recall the last time I saw a film, not in recent memory, that I so insistently and consistently disliked. And look, I think I should point out that I'm not one of these critics or or moviegoers who dislikes a film because the characters are necessarily unlikable. I think that's a sort of a fairly spurious and ridiculous comment that's often made around around cinema. But what I I guess I expect or what I look for in a film that has a cast of characters that are are all fairly uniformly dislikable is some kind of variation. And for me, all these characters felt identical. I could see that they were written from the same person. They felt all um, uniformly two-dimensional. And, and there was a sense of repetition which really frustrated me about this film, even with the different segments, which didn't really quite work for me either, um, where I, I just felt 
that Perry was doing the same thing with the same characters in every scene, and it really rubbed me the wrong way, to the point that I'm going to make a very sanctimonious comment, but given the lead character of this film is incredibly sanctimonious, I think <laughs> you can give me a pass. And that is, each scene, or almost every scene in this film, felt like it went through a kind of a four-point process, which was, and the, the, the opening couple of sequences are, are kind of part and parcel of this. Number one, establish the character as a sanctimonious prick. Number two, have that character declare that the world is full of assholes. Point three, reiterate the creative genius of that character, and that because of that genius, that will be the inevitable cause of that character's life full of loneliness. Also because of point two, the world is full of assholes. And then recap points one through three with a voiceover just to make sure that if there were any audience members that weren't clear on points one through three, that they would get that. And that's a very smug, sanctimonious comment to make, and I can already see Thomas giving me a disapproving look. But that, that, that's no, for me. Not... <laughs> I, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually that... agreeing with that the, the narration was terrible. I didn't like that at all. Um, I've misinterpreted Thomas's, uh, Thomas, Thomas's <laughs> look, and I apologise. Maybe in the same way that some people are telling me or will tell me that I've misinterpreted this film. But I, I found that, that sense of repetition and the, the lack of variation between these characters really frustrating, and I didn't particularly see that the, the Elizabeth Moss character, as much as I think she's a talented performer, um, sold a, a point of differentiation. In fact, the only character that I saw a point of differentiation and saw the potential to look upon these male characters in a critical manner is the uh, the Christian Ritter character and once again like Tim Burton did two weeks ago when we talked about Big Eyes she's resigned to a kind of a, a bit part that never is really explored but has such wonderful potential and there's there's one moment where she's really established as quite a sympathetic figure in relation to a scene with her father but again I, I thought that was the moment that you could have established a critical context because for, for the most part with the other two female characters the Moss one and the, the French teacher who's suddenly introduced towards oh, the random. end. It just felt like there's, there's, there's no or I didn't see a justifiable reason why either of those women would A, be attracted to such a sanctimonious prick and then would mourn and mope over them. You didn't know me as an undergrad. You really, you need to hang out with more 19-year-old girls. That's why this film worked for me, I think. I actually agree with a lot of the points that you've made, Josh, but I think that it was, it just really hit me because I know those guys. I've met those guys. I was in love with them all the way through my undergraduate years in high school. I used to work for a writer's festival, so I met a lot of those guys. So my life experiences should be narrowed. No, probably blessed. Um, but even, but the, even those kind of guys are attractive if you're a, if you're a nineteen you know nineteen year old literature studying undergraduate. But what was the, I guess what maybe I was searching for and the, the point of frustration with this film is is to what end? To what end is is are those comments made about? And and I guess the, the maybe what would have sold this film to me more is if we'd understood the genius. If we'd seen the creative genius, we'd maybe have been able to forgive his prickery, but again, maybe that's not the point. But yeah, uh, I've got no idea how you would show that either. Um, but yeah, all, all we see is this, for the most part, a talentless, socially awkward prick. And I, I was like, well, why? If we'd understood what the attraction was, why Elizabeth Motts would be so drawn to him and stay with him for two years, and why this French teacher would overcome her hatred of him and suddenly take up residence with him? What is it about that? Where's the genius reside that is a, the kind of spark that they can get beyond the social mannerism? And I never saw that, so I didn't buy it. I suspect it's very conscious. This film is very, very conscious of its 
literary references. Um, and even Woody Allen, I mean, there's that really... I think that this film was in, indebted as much to Woody Allen as it is to Philip Roth. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. It's got, I mean, it it's, looks, got, it's, got, it's got a similar look looks and like feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's even a bit of, I think, Altman influence and yep. even Cascavetti's influence yep. stylistically. It's very conscious too. of yeah. these and perhaps too conscious to the point where it's it's... Maybe it is falling into that smugness that I don't like on that front. I also did... I, I really thought that the um, Jonathan Price character, uh, Zimmerman, I mean, that whole third of the section on him, to me, was just a really naff Ghosts of Christmas Future warning. I thought that that, that was the section that really started to lose me. And the, the second half of this film didn't work as much for me as the first half, but I did really love the first half because I was... I just had terrible taste in men when I was 19. The first half had a couple of interesting editing techniques. Tom, it's worth flagging something that I did appreciate, and that was the ellipses in the narrative. There's a moment where he's, he's saying, punch me in the stomach to this guy who's potentially he's going to write provide journalistic coverage on this other person's book tour. And then suddenly we leap forward X number of days or weeks or months. And it did that a couple of times in that opening section and then abandoned that te- technique. I thought there were so many moments in the what I found a fairly turgid kind of second and third act where you could have leapt forward but it was something that Perry obviously sort of dismissed after that opening section. Polarising views on Listener <laughs> Philip here in Plato's Cave. You're listening to 3 Triple R 3 Triple R now we're going to discuss a classic film that's recently been re-released on DVD in Australia. It's a non-lineal film, so the story is told out of sequence. It begins with a pair of hitmen who discuss banalities before we realise just how dangerous they are, and it includes a subplot about boxing. Of course I'm talking about uh, Robert Siodmuk's 1946 film, The Killers. Look, like so many other directors working in Hollywood in the 40s and the 50s, Siodmuk uh, began his career in Germany before leaving during the rise of Nazism to eventually make his way to Hollywood. And like so many of his contemporaries, he shaped the film noir look by incorporating elements of German expressionism. And we've got that all throughout The Killers. And you notice this very early in the film, which is why I'm very excited. There is some outstanding uses of expressionist light in this. Lots of dramatic backlighting to transform the characters into into menacing uh, silhouettes. Lots of terrific side lighting, so the characters cast large shadows all over the set. There's some really impressive cinematography in this film. There's a high sequence that's shot from a crane at a distance. There's a scene early on. It's a single take where the camera's inside a building. We're following the action outside the building, and then the camera continues to show us what's happening in the house while that action on the street makes its way into the house, all in one shot. It's, it's great. Um, this is a film adapted from a 1927 short story by Ernest Hemingway. Um, and the story I have read is almost entirely dialogue, and it only comprises the opening couple of sequences of the film, where these two hitmen show up in a small town. They execute a man known as the Swede, uh, who's played in this film by Burt Lancaster. It's his film debut, and there's no doubt that Burt Lancaster is a star from his performance in this film. Um, So that's the short story, and that's the opening sequences. The rest of the film then involves uh, a man from an insurance insurance company trying to figure out why the Swede was killed and why the Swede did nothing to save himself. Uh, Throughout the investigation, we get a series of flashbacks from various points in the Swede's life, uh, and we get an abundance of film noir tropes in this film. We've got double 
double crossings, a colourful ensemble of gangster characters, a seductive and deadly femme fatale played by Ava Gardner, brutal and blunt hard-boiled dialogue. You've got former childhood friends who ended up on opposite sides of the law. There's a boxing match match a heist yeah dark lighting and of course unrequited sexual tension that's enough to make a guy go crazy um the killers is probably not the most progressive film from the film noir cycle uh i don't think the majority of the film ever lives up to the incredible high quality of the opening sequences that came direct from hemingway's short story but look the, com- the complexity of this narrative structure is really impressive and influential uh, i think pulp fiction owes an enormous amount to this film uh it's very entertaining it's intriguing and look i think it's very much a classic from the great american film noir genre which was shaped by germans and defined by the french <laughs> yes this is um this is a love letter to noir in fact your opening was a love letter to noir and a love letter to the killers and i'm not going to stop the gush fest um i've had an undying love for burt lancaster he's the greatest bruce wayne never to play batman as far as i'm concerned that chin of oh his oh my gosh that's perfect would have been uh, yeah, one day one day when the technology has arisen i'm going to um i'm going to cast <laughs> him myself as a sort of a, a collection of images into a batman narrative <laughs> so cool but that's yep. a side project um let's get back to the killers i, I I, th- I think you're spot on in terms of the way in which, Thomas, you talk about this film covering so much noir territory from a stylistic point of view, from a narrative point of view, the um, fairly complex use of flashbacks. And that was something that, that, that struck me on, on this watch. And I'd seen the actually uh, Andre Tarkovsky did a, a short in 1956 or 57. 57, I think. Which is, yeah, which is just that opening sequence, which is just the, the Hemingway. And I think you're right in some ways. It is the strongest moment. There's such an in- a palpable sense of tension in that, in that early section. But the rest of it is really this love letter to noir, um, particularly in terms of, and this is part of that flashback narrative, the way in which it frames Burt Lancaster's character, since we, we see him killed off in, in that in early scene, and the whole thing is about uncovering the life of this dead man, the way he's positioned by each of the various flashbacks and the people referring to him in these strange guises of, of differing versions of noir masculinity, you have him as the broken boxer, the, the criminal, the reformed criminal, the stylish mobster post post jail the self-sacrificing gent the suicidal drunk you know the 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 passive figure that he's positioned at at the beginning of the film where we don't even see him it's just one of those one one of the many wonderful shots where it's just complete dark silhouette and i thought that was a really fascinating way in which it seemed like film noir commenting on the various types of film noir and the way in which flashback is used to construct identity that you know and it's it's really cliche to bring in citizen kane because it's not the only film that's used flashback in this way but to talk about the way in which subjective recollection and subjective memory is used to suggest maybe there is no one swede maybe we never understand this man's life even though that's not the focus of the investigation it's more the kind of the questions about money and the insurance scam potentially i think you're uh, you're bang on um i mean i think it's worth noting that yes this film is based on a hemingway short story but as you said outside of that first 15 20 minutes the rest of it was written by um, by other people, and those people were uncredited, um, but they were John Houston, who was the director of The Maltese Falcon and The African Queen, and Richard Brooks, who did Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. These are well-known guys who know... Well, I, I absolutely agree with you that Citizen Kane yeah. is a really conscious point of reference in this film, as I think is Double Indemnity. Yep. Um, Double Indemnity is an interesting... Uh, film to talk about, I think, in relation to this movie because it's one of the many points of comparison is it's uh, the music's done by Miklos Rosa, who did the soundtrack for Double Indemnity as well. Fantastically complex soundtrack and use of music in this film. There's one point where he layers different 
musical soundtracks on top of each other, both diegetically and non-diegetically, and you have them competing really complex, really interesting stuff. So you have the visual stuff that you were talking about, Thomas, but then you also have this crazy, crazy stuff going on with the soundtrack. Such a such a wild film. I, I also really like... Um, I'm a big fan of Lancaster too, but I love film noir that really focus on these huge men, like physically big, looming guys, Robert Mitchum, uh, Robert Ryan... But Lancaster, of course, and just watches them crumble. Just you know, not not just masculinity in crisis, but but masculinity decaying in front of you. Just just the, the visual spectacle of, of that is is wild. It's it's beautiful. I mean, I find this film in a way it's more of a tragedy than it is a a crime story. I think you could say that about most film noir, yeah, can't true. you? Yeah, certainly Sjord Max. I think both yep. Phantom Lady and Chris Cross. Chris mm. Cross he did after this on the back of the success. Um, also with Lancaster again, and that touches on... I mean, it's the same kind of fatalism and pessimism. Yeah, he worked a few times with Lancaster. I think Crimson, the Crimson Pirate, I think, was one of his as well, was that wasn't it? Yeah. I don't know that. I think okay, I, so. don't look at me, but sure. Um, <laughs> but you can you can tell the John Hewson era of dialogue. I mean, there's some there's mm. some, there's so mm. many great lines, and you know, it's not it is I guess part and parcel of the genre at this time. But there's a line at the end toward towards the end of this film where we have a cop says, "Don't ask a dying man to lie his soul into hell." <laughs> I was like, "Wow, yeah." Oh, the dialogue in these films is gorgeous. And crackling. I, what I really loved about this film is the brutality and the bluntness of the dialogue which actually it's there in the Hemingway story and I think the writers did a pretty good job of continuing that dialogue throughout the film even though I think majority of the dialogue in the rest of this film is more there for moving the story forward and developing characters. What I love about that first scene are, is the sort of banality of some of the conversation. Like, I'm sure... I suspect if I looked it up now, Tarantino would list, list this film as a massive influence on him because the, the hitmen characters are such prototypes for his hitmen characters. I also just realised um, that I, I, just, I just quickly looked up comparing it to Citizen Kane is is quite a conventional um, approach, and I don't know who first said this, but it's been it's often been referred to as the the Citizen Kane of film noir, um, and very much. I mean, I think it's a really sophisticated uh, reading, Josh, that the way the different flashbacks show us the different versions of this man, and we do get the him. You know, he almost looks like a different character, it's especially when you see him in his kind of gangster party boy clothes, and he's just kind of so, so loud and the man of the party. This is very different to the, the, the boxer who's been beaten to a pulp, or, or the kind of noble yet broken man we see at the very start of the film, or the suicidal man we see in, in a flashback. And I think, you know, it's a testament to director and actor that they did all that so well. Um, what do you think, though, about the very traditional idea in this film that his downfall was because of the love of a woman who was never, ever going to return that love and she double-crossed him and led him on and led him astray. I can't believe you called her a woman and not by her correct name, which is a dame. A dame, <laughs> sorry. She's a brassy dame. We've got one of those later in the show, actually. I, well, to, I love yeah. the brassy dames. <laughs> to quote the film again, if there's one thing in this world I hate, it's a double-crossing dame. <laughs> I think she's fantastic. I, think I mean, she's amazing. She's certainly, for me, her, her entrance, she's, she's sitting on a piano, I think. Yep. And to me, it's one of the great femme fatale entrances. It's up there with Gilda... Rita Hayworth and Gilda, and of course, again, I keep coming back to Double, Double Indemnity. indemnity. Well, yeah. As much as, well, as much as Citizen yeah. Kane, I think yeah. Double Indemnity is, a, mm. especially that last scene in the insurance office. Um, no spoiler there, just the last. Is it the last scene? In the uh, insurance yeah, office? Yeah, the last I think so, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, her entry, and I mean, the femme fatale is always curious ideological ground to tread retrospectively. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, is she progressive? Is she not? You know, I mean, I, I love David Gardner. I thought she she was fantastic in this film. I think she was the right femme fatale for the 
for the bad dame role. She's great. So this is The Killers. Uh, this is the 1946 uh, adaptation. It's just been re-released on DVD in Australia. Just interesting to note, when this film was first released, it was combined with the 1964 version. And I think if you buy the Criterion edition from overseas, that these two films are still bundled. I really hope the 64 version also gets released, because I'd love us all to visit that one. But that's directed by Don Siegel of Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Dirty Harry fame, and stars Leave Marvin. Apparently it starred Ronald Reagan in his last performance before he went into politics. And curious enough, that does the same thing. It begins with the short story, and then it follows the hitmen, and what the hitmen do after that. So, um, fingers crossed that also gets re-released, because I'd love to discuss it. But in the meantime, folks, go and get this uh, 1946 version of The Killers, which is currently available on DVD in Australia. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 R. 3 Ah. Elaine Stritch, shoot me. Over to you, Josh. Yeah, so this documentary, funnily enough, is about uh, Elaine Stritch, who I think most people will be familiar with from her role as Colleen Donaghy, the mother of Alec, and as she refers to him, Alec Joan Crawford Baldwin, and his character (laughs) in the sitcom 30 Rock. But when the documentary opens, this is a woman, I think she's 86, when the documentary starts following her, and she's been performing on stage, in television, and in film for over 60 years, and she reminds Minds us at various points of that fact from any, everything, and she and she has an incredibly eclectic um, uh, filmography. Uh, everything from the 1947 stage play of Dracula, where she starred opposite Dracula himself, Bela Lugosi, through to I just discovered today she was the voice of Grandma in Paranorman, one of uh, one of my favourite animations of of recent times. Mm, likewise, and she is a remarkable character, and we see that from the very opening scene where I can't even repeat what she says on on air. I could, <laughs> Cerise could do it. Um, where she talks about ageing and gives a very sort of sting-in-the-tail barb about what that means and, and how she'd like to menace society. And at various points we hear people, and including herself, refer to herself as irascible, brassy, stylish, resilient, feisty, irreverent, direct... And also vulnerable. And I think the best description um, that we get in, in this documentary, Elaine Stritch, Shoot Me, is this. And it's she's a Molotov cocktail of madness, sanity and genius. But I think it's worth pointing out that this is not just a puff piece. This is not a fluff piece. This is not a kind of sycophantic love letter to Elaine Stritch. This is quite a serious documentary. And it caught me off guard because the first 10 minutes or so I was thinking, oh, what a wonderful character. So, I mean, and the best documentaries have the best subjects. And she is a wonderful subject. But 10 minutes into this film we see her rehearsing for what is a kind of the the key performance that we see her performing in this season which is a a revival of Stephen Sondheim songs and she's in a rehearsal studio and she forgets the lyrics and at first you think oh she's just in her 80s she's forgetting lyrics and then we realize she's actually having a hypoglycemic attack because she's got diabetes and we see a response and suddenly this irascible woman is made to seem very frail very vulnerable and 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 quite scared as well and this is what i loved about this documentary well, one of the many things i loved about this documentary is it's a kind of a, a warts and all and and we see her at various points dealing with her mortality her um, opinions about show business her incredible history and wonderful anecdotes from everything from JFK, her love affair with Ben Gazzara, um, her letter from Woody Allen, which she's got framed, and I'm not going to spoil all of them, but, you know, it's it's a kind of a, a wonderful 
and complex documentary, which I think manages to cover a character in quite some depth, even though it really only follows her for a, a short period of time. But it was really the, the sting in the tail, and, and this film really did catch me off guard, and I got quite emotional at a number of points watching this film. Yeah, it's... um. It's very, it very effectively creates a portrait of somebody who, with a reputation for brassness and cynicism, and yet she's all those things and she deserves that reputation, but also somebody who's full of a lot of kindness who was a, and a wonderful friend to people who, who knew her. And uh, its real strength is when we see that astonishing vulnerability she has as a performer, especially now in later years, that age is beginning to affect her memory and also the diabetes. Um, I think what what really blew me away in this film, the bit that kind of sent a shiver down my spine and made me want to kind of uh, cry and applaud at the same time, is we, we see her frustrations rehearsing, how she's forgetting lines and getting incredibly upset. I mean, she's a performer, she's a professional, this is her life, and it's like she's losing this skill. And then we see her, her performances where she kind of incorporates the memory loss and it works out really nicely. But but the scene is, yeah, she's rehearsing I Feel Pretty and it's going horribly wrong. And then when we, when we see her perform it, she just nails it. And it's this kind of old-school performance that you don't see much of anymore that I suppose is old-fashioned and out of date. But she sells it and it's amazing. And it's sort of both your heart goes out to her for, oh, my God, she's made this work. And also you just feel like you were in the company of absolute genius. Um, it's not even a style of performance I'm particularly invested in or interested in and I'll still blown away so I I really like that I like the form of this documentary it's focusing on what she's doing now and it kind of drips little bits of information of her past in as we go along it hasn't got that traditional sort of I, I was born to a lovely pair of people and then to, and to now I got to hear format I, 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 I enjoyed that I thought it, it covered her emotions over her her very brief marriage in a way that was quite profound. A really interesting line where she says that the grief she felt for her husband when he died um, was the kind of grief that as a performer you, you wish you could tap into to create an amazing impression. And I thought, what a beautiful detail and enough said. That's all we need to know about that. That's a really great, great moment. So look, and discussions of her own coming on, uh, of her mortality is really quite profound too. Seeing it somebody at this end of their, their life oscillating between being really ready for it and complete terror. And, and she allows all that to be filmed. Um, you know, we also see in this film she often tells the camera person what to film and when and all that kind of detail is delightful. There's a, there's a lot of fun to be had in this. There were a few bits and pieces that I, I really wanted fleshed out more. Um, I'm assuming that the, the documentary filmmaker probably would have liked to as well, but they could only do what they they could do. I, there's a hint that the relationship with her parents is quite complicated. There was an anecdote about her mother shutting her out um, a lot. I, I kind of wish... We found out a bit more about that. I was curious to know a little bit more about her fan base. Um, she's very cynical about the faux politeness of the entertainment industry. I'd love to have known more about that. I'd like to know what, what, how did she go from convent school to her life on the stage. And I also really wanted to find out why doesn't she wear pants? <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought up the fashion factor. I, I've never seen 30 Rock. I think I've seen maybe half of an episode. So I didn't have that as an entry point to this film. But she... I mean, I was one straight away with her her proud, foul, dirty mouth. I mean, yep. I hate to be the token girl, but this woman's style, she's like an octogenarian Annie Hall, these giants, giant signature glasses that she wears. She's just beautiful. I, I mean, I agree with you. This is It's hardly an experimental documentary, but it's very, very solid. I'm so glad that I saw it. But it's 
at its core, it's so respectful of its subject. There's never a point. It is a very personal film, but there's never a point that you feel that she's being exploited. Um, I, I, I mean, there's, there's a scene at, near the end of the film that's extremely personal. You're in a very personal, private space, and there's not one moment in that scene that I doubted that we were there because Stritch wanted us there. She wanted the camera there, that she demanded that the camera was there. I never felt... Thinking of a film we saw a few weeks ago, the um, Vivian Meyer documentary, I, I didn't have the ethical issues that with this film, obviously very different subjects, but um, she was so in control. It was a really lovely feeling watching this and knowing, feeling very welcomed by her in every sense. It's really intimate details. She's very open, the way that she spoke about her alcoholism and that the film was so accepting of her contradictions. One of my favourite moments is where she very very casually announces that she has a tiny bottle of Bombay Sapphire <laughs> uh, in her handbag next to her insulin. And there's no judgment. There's no... Hmm. It's just she... she this is a, a woman who has allowed her dignity and who, is, who has earned the right to do the hell as she damn well pleases. And I love that spirit. It goes all the way through it. I mean, she just won my heart. I'm just so glad that... You know, from the first F-bomb, I'm just so glad that I saw this film. <laughs> Filthy woman. It's a good opening line, isn't it, to start <laughs> a film with, yeah. Um, and we see that, and it's not pointed out, but it's, it's fairly obvious from one of the many sequences of archival footage we get, which I think is taken from a documentary on the making of Company, yeah, so, where yeah. she's standing next to Sondheim and she's singing it, and he makes a comment about her voice and her screaming, and he she praises his his lyrics and talks about her voice and we see her listening back to the recording she's just made and the self the self-loathing she has but she is she she's been drinking like she's off her rocket there and and you then the camera cuts back to Sondheim and you see the look on his face of how do I deal with someone like this and I think you know the film says everything without making the point clear because I think in a in an adjacent scene or one just previous, we have Tina Fey saying, "You learn very quickly in this industry the people who are difficult but who are worth it," mm. and she is worth mm. it. And I think that's a recurrent theme that we get in in this film. But I think the point you raised, Alex, about is this exploitative? You know, it was a comment that was made to me, uh, someone else who was watching it, not necessarily on the documentary, but should she still be performing? Mm. And I, I think she's she shows in this film that she's in control. She is going to keep performing on stage till she says, "Look, enough's enough. I'm done." There's a beautiful line that she has uh, near the end of the film where she says that she likes the courage of age, and that was the end of me. That was I was emotionally quite yeah. rocked by that line. I thought, what, just one of the most devastatingly brave, intelligent, proud, wonderful mm. things I've ever heard a human being say. Say we don't talk a lot about aging in those kind of terms. I've, I just found it such an empowering, beautiful film. I'm trying to cast my mind back to the Joan Rivers doco, which was a few years ago, and a few people have compared this, and I don't know if that's entirely appropriate beyond sort of fairly surface similarities, um, but I remember in, I think the Joan Rivers doco, um, there was more of a sense that she had to keep performing there for, for monetary reasons. Um, I may be recalling that wrong, so maybe I, I should stop now, but you don't get that with <laughs> Elaine Stritch. I mean, her life is performing. I mean, obviously it was... I sort of mentioned that I, I wish we could have found out a bit more about why she left the convent to go on stage, but but I think I've started to answer my own question. It, it's her church, it's her religion, like she adores it, this is her, her life. Um... And you get some beautiful testimonies from other people in the film, and it's not there's not too much as well. There's the danger of these kind of films, the packet full of celebrities saying nice things, but you, just, you get brief moments with key Thirty Rock cast, which are really which are really nice. It's great seeing her um, 
Chris sort of confronting Tracy Morgan about his his blood sugar as well and checking that he's all up to date. So I believe he, he has a problem with that as well. Um, there's, there's some nice sort of exchanges of of barbs with Alec Baldwin. Um, Baldwin's an executive producer on this film, I noticed as well. So he obviously was very fond for her. There is a heartbreakingly beautiful tribute from James Gandolfini, oh. which wow, I mean, <laughs> oh, that <laughs> the was, film is yeah. actually dedicated to who is dedicated. So he would have died just shortly after this. Is it, this is a 2013 film, so he would have died not too long ago after this film was completed. And, and he really adored her. And actually, you can see photographs of him in the background of quite a few scenes in her rehearsal space and home. So there's obviously quite a strong bond there. And Gandolfini even makes... Could have been so sleazy if he said it wrong, but he, he actually makes what is quite a sweet comment that if, you know, if Elaine Stritch and him knew each other at a sort of different time when they were younger, it would have been an amazing affair that would have gone up in flames and ended horribly, but it would have been amazing. And look, I should mention that, because I think stylistically and from a pacing point of view, I think this is a really taut documentary. I don't think it's just the subject that makes this. There's no flap here whatsoever. There's mm, such a, an, an economy of, of editing and an economy of style. I mean, it only goes just over 80 minutes, and it, it just zips past, I think. And the, it, it's a, actually a directorial debut from director Kiemi Karasawa, who worked predominantly as a script supervisor on things like Sopranos and many other film and television um, programs, but also as a producer on Harry Dean Stanton Partly Fiction. Yeah, I noticed that. I didn't know that. She's actually produced an enormous amount. So she's one of these filmmakers who's kind of, I, I gather, I know next to nothing about her, but looking at her credits, I gather she's been working in the industry for an awful long time and has built up quite a skill set, not to mention some brilliant connections. Mm. And that, that really shows. I, mean, I just thought that background has clearly led to this very wonderful and kind of timely confluence of, of subject, right place, right time and right, right talent. That's Elaine Stritch. What are we calling it? Shoot me. Shoot me. It's screening at the moment at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. You're on Plato's Cave here on 3RRR. Just before we finish up on Plato's Cave, you can get in touch with us on Facebook, Plato's Cave Film, and Twitter, Plato's Cave Film. You can also email us, platoscavefilm at gmail.com. And if you head over to the Plato's Cave uh, page on the RRR website, you can get a, a list of the films we've discussed, uh, what do you call it, playlist, and all those contact details. And we did receive a rather fun email over Easter from Peter who was just letting us know these family who are in their late 60s went to Mona recently and they thought they would check out the River of Fundament exhibition which has been put on there in conjunction with the, the, sort of the, the roughly six hour Matthew Barney film at River of Fundament and he's written, my parents complained for about 45 minutes at our Easter, at our family Easter catch-up. This was very rare indeed, as they don't often whinge unless it's about the cost of living. I'm sure you're all aware of what I'm talking about and perhaps having a little giggle. We won't be covering the River of Fundamental <laughs> thing on Plato's Cave. It's not likely to get a general release. It's very much a big art installation film like Matthew Barney's previous films, Cree Master, which for the record I quite enjoyed. I especially liked parts... Two and five, which was shot at a sequence, and but he kind of just for the uninitiated, he, he kind of d- treats film as an art installation. You can't even buy copies of his DVDs because he regards them as artworks, which I find kind of obnoxious. Um, but that's a whole different story. But River of Fundament, yeah, look, very long film that goes over six hours, full of corporophilia. I don't know. Do we need to add anything else? Well, we should mention that Elaine Stritch. It was her last. Um uh, that role. was our connection. That's, <laughs> why, that's why we read his email. That was the point of segue. That Lane Stritch's final kind of credit is a, a small part, I'm presuming, in if six hours of Lane Stritch, and it would be great, but I think it's only a small role. So there you go. I could bring more links. She was also in the 70s remake of Sealed Max Spiral Staircase. 
everything coming six together. Six degrees of stretch. Six degrees six of stretch. Six degrees of stretch. But, Peter, um, I'm sorry to hear that your parents did go and see that. Apparently, <laughs> he said they ignored the verbal advice from the very nice young lady at the entrance. So there we go. If it's somebody at a gallery saying, in all seriousness, don't watch Do this film, <laughs> don't go in. Uh, you've been listening to Plato's Cave with Josh, Alex and Thomas. We spoke about Listen Up Philip, which is currently screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, thanks to Man Man Entertainment. And that's also where Elaine Stritch Shoot Me is currently screening. Uh, both films, and that, that's, sorry, screening thanks to Isotope Films. Both those films are only screening. It's a limited run throughout April. So go to the Acme website for details. And The Killers is available on DVD from Shock Entertainment. Come back next week. We'll be here again, the three of us. We're going to be talking about Mummy, which I mentioned, uh, the new Vim Vendors doco, The Salt of the Earth, and other things. Good night. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.